Hi there. You're listening to the very first episode of the Down on the Farm podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Grosnick. The Down on the Farm podcast is a companion to the Down on the Farm newsletter available for subscription on Substack, where we cover all things minor league baseball with a professional, data-driven point of view. Today's guest is Ellie Ben-Porat of his eponymous Ellie's Baseball Research Substack newsletter, and we're going to be discussing some of his latest research on pitch synergy, as well as hopefully how it can apply to some minor leaguers and minor league player development how to look for markers for success in pitchers. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me today. And before we get into kind of pitch synergy and and the the subject of the show, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, I said the one-on-one of me is I'm a data guy in my day-to-day. I take business data and I make it simple and easy for business leaders to consume and make decisions on. And I tend to take that approach in baseball analytics as well. My central philosophy is trying to simplify complex subjects and allowing everybody to use that information. Well, that's super, super useful because, you know, as the divide between private and public data has kind of changed over the last few years, making it simple, making it easy to understand is kind of critical as we move into like these more complex models. We're way past the days when you can just sort by uh, on base percentage and, and get some real value out of that. So so being communicative in a way that simplifies these, these complex processes is going to be super helpful. So thank you so much for joining. Uh, what I think we'd like to start with, if you don't mind, is just to talk a little bit about pitch synergy. You've got a point of view on pitch synergy and how it's different from some of the other research that's taken place in the past before. So why don't you give us a little bit of the basics on what pitch synergy is to you and, and what it matters for, for pitchers and in baseball? So to me, the, the central thesis is that when a batter perceives pitch movement from a pitcher, it's mostly only in two dimensions plus time. Because when we think about it, we think about pitches in three dimensions, you know, moving towards the batter, to the left, to the right, or up and down, so horizontally and vertically. And it occurred to me, I read a book by Michael Stadler a long time ago, which I reached out to him and I couldn't actually find him. And what his research was demonstrating was that it's almost impossible for batters to accurately assess how close the ball is to them. They have like 0.4 seconds to figure it out. And in that time frame. It's almost impossible. And we see this with Yohan Santana's changeup and great changeups. The batters pretty much just can't tell how close the ball is to them within the time frame it takes to swing. And so I wanted to test out what that would look like if we just look at it on horizontally, vertically, over time, and to see what pitches would look like. I looked at this a bunch of different ways. It's extremely hard to quantify, at least with my capabilities. Mm-hmm how that translates into anything like swing decision qualities and other things. You'll see as I go through my research notes, there's a lot of doubt because in a lot of instances, there's so many other factors at play that they drown out the positive aspects of movement synergy. Yeah. And the swing decision part of things is is something that's getting a lot of play right now in analytic circles. I know we're going to be posting something, I think, as of this recording in a, in a day or two about swing decision run values and, and how that's being compartmentalized and made to be uh, something that, that players can use as a metric for, for making swing decisions. But so as far as your synergy work goes, how does it kind of differ from the previous work that's been done before in terms of tunneling and release point and those kinds of things. And where is your pitch synergy work a little bit different from that? It's funny enough. So I, when I, when I first did this research, I sent it over to Harry Pavlidis because he, you know, with that, uh, with what baseball prospectus had published. And I thought that what I published, what I was working on was completely different. 
turns out I just didn't really understand what uh, what that research was. And really, actually, from a mechanical perspective, it's very similar. Okay. I, I'm hedging a little bit because I don't fully understand that research, and I'm worried I may mischaracterize it. But essentially, in spirit, the concept that the Y vector, i.e. how close it is to the batter, is not nearly as important as we would think, is the same principle in both. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Originally, I was calling it tunneling, but then I had some back and forth with Tom Tango. And he was saying, what, what you're saying is not tunneling because I'm not, I don't really care where the release is. It doesn't have to go through the same proverbial tunnel. It's more about whether the movement has synergy. That's why I came onto that, you know, movement synergy as a term. And synergy is a term that everyone loves, you know, especially in the corporate world. So sure. call, it, call it movement synergy. No one's going to complain. So I'd say it's, it's similar. So I don't think what I'm doing is groundbreaking from a research novelty perspective, but it comes back to my central ethos. I think what I'm presenting is extremely easy to consume. It's easy, it's easy to calculate and it's easy to graph and show differences and how pitches synergize. It's a very easy way to show that. I was going to say the other big difference was what they were looking at was like back-to-back pitch pairs. I know they may, that that research might be changing and that's, in my opinion, not a correct way to look at it. Really should be looking at it the way a pitcher, pitcher's pitches move holistically, you know, based on the way a batter is going to research them on video or what they've experienced with that, with that pitcher. And that's really how batters will attack that pitcher. So they know how a pitch moves in general based on all the pitches they've seen their entire lives. And that pitcher specifically which when we talk about times through the order, it's actually interesting because I was looking at my swing decision value metric and you see like a half a run difference as we go first, second, third. That's a topic for a, uh, for a different day. And I think if I understood your research and, and how you explained it correctly, um, there's, a, there's a point in time as the pitch reaches the batter where the information is no longer useful to them. They can't respond in in roughly the last third of the ball's flight. That's when they've gotten all the information they could possibly use is in the first two-thirds of the ball's flight. In the last third of the ball's flight, they would have had to make a decision already by then. They can't react to any changes uh, in the pitch at that point. Is that is that something that's still pretty accurate? Correct, correct. So that's that was in Mike Stadler's book and... Yeah. Uh... Harry in, 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 that, in that research piece on baseball prospect is linked to that as well, is that the ball is moving too fast and the eyeball actually can't move fast enough to actually see the ball in the last one third of the flight, roughly. Right. Okay. You're going to basically use the horizontal and the vertical movement, not the distance from the hitter. And you're going to try to see how the entirety of a pitcher's group of pitches um, is similar or different. Um, whether, you know, in the example that you give of Jacob DeGrom, their fastball and their slider specifically, you know, with his other offerings as well, how that those pitches move differently from a vertical and a horizontal space over the time of the the flight of the ball where the batter actually can make a decision out of it. Correct. And it's not, there's no specific decision point. Right. It's just the general principle is for as long as possible, you want to maintain that horizontal movement synergy and the vertical movement synergy. And then past a certain point, you want to have that those differentials be massive. And so you will see with DeGrom is for the beginning part of the flight, it's identical. And then for the last, you know, the second half of the flight, it's a massive difference. And that's, I think, a great way to visualize stuff. Now, it works beautifully with sliders. 
the fastball slider player, it works beautifully. And I can, so what, what, whenever I like lose confidence in, in the principle, I look back at those pitchers, like a Shane Bieber, you look at him and he's got like unbelievable synergy on basically all of his pitches. Mm -hmm. And what I found is with changeups, you can have perfect synergy, but there's so much else that goes into a changeup and deception that you can have perfect synergy and batters can pick it up easily. I saw that with a Garrett Cole, I think Luis Severino, even even Shane Bieber. The changeups, I wish I had like limb speed data so I could see are they tipping their pitches by slowing their arm down? Are they tipping their pitch some other way? But so for the changeups, it's just a little bit less effective because of this idea that perhaps they're tipping their pitches, perhaps the delivery is a little bit different, the arm speed slow down or something like that, where it doesn't but it doesn't compare as well to a fastball slider combo. Correct. So it seems like fastball slider is easier for whatever reason to to attempt to be deceptive with and for changeups they're not. I don't really have an answer to why and I'm just making an educated guess that it's more about arm speed and that certain pitchers just can't throw the changeup with as much conviction as other pitchers. Sure. And that's just just an educated guess but it's not founded in data because I don't have any data on that. Well, and given how recently so much of every reliever with a fastball and a slider who can locate the ball moderately well seems to be successful, at least in one innings, uh, one inning periods, that that seems to bear out that the, that pairing specifically would be highly, highly useful. The part which doesn't seem to matter from a synergy perspective at all are curveballs. Okay. I'm still stumped by curveballs, and my conclusion seems to be you just need a good curveball, and that's pretty much it. And it's more about pitch quality and movement synergy doesn't matter. The only pitcher I've seen so far that actually has good movement synergy was Jordan Montgomery. And he has movement synergy between his cutter and his curveball, and that seems to work. But he's the only pitcher I've seen so far, and I can't really explain too much about it, though my recent research is showing me that you pretty much just want to aim the curveball down the middle. Mm-hmm. And that will give you, on average, and that will give you the best swing decision outcomes. Yeah, well, I mean, locating a curveball has been something that you know pitchers have been really trying to focus on for years and years and years. So that would bear out in some of the anecdotal evidence as well that you know curveball location could be even more important than break or you know speed that kind of thing. So that that tends to bear out as far as the uh, the eye test might go. Um, so what other big ticket kind of things have you discovered when you've been going through? this pitch synergy process and, and exploring the data. Are there any other big kind of hypotheses that you saw bear out or are there things that you were kind of challenged on or are there any other major takeaways that have really come kind of come across as part of this process? I think my, my main takeaways are two things. First, it's being able to communicate why a pitch doesn't get swing and miss by the late vertical separation. And that you see the pitchers that have great swing and miss, swing and miss stuff, they have that tremendous late vertical separation. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, extremely easy to communicate to, to a pitcher. But this is what it should look like, and this is what your pitch actually looks like. Right. And the second piece is you can show, you can kind of tell, like if you flatten out the vertical attack angle with the fastball, or you add a little bit of tilt with the slider, this is how much difference it would make. And, or if you get more on top of it, so that you get more initial downward force or you get a little bit to the side and and I'm not a pitcher I'm not a pitching coach I don't know how to actually change the the movement chart Mm -hmm. you can show how just this small tweak 
will make your fastball slider pair look more like DeGrom's. Now, you may, you may never get to that because you don't have the natural ability to to do that, but you can get closer to that. Sure. So this kind of leads into the player development and the pitch design idea of this. So we've established through your research that it's really beneficial to have late vertical movement, late vertical separation between your fastball and your slider, ideally, or really any two pitches. But the late vertical separation can really make a big deal, especially with the fastball slider pair. And then so now it would be up to a player development or a pitch design guru to try to help the player get that separation late in the game. Would it be something where, you know, it's really about the late separation and movement from two offerings? It's not specifically tied to this this fastball slider pair, but any two pitches that synergize well and have a difference in late movement, that's really what they're going for from this perspective. I would think so. Again, this is not founded in in hard data. Mm-hmm. So I'm hedging a little bit, but especially for the fastball slider, but I've seen with like a Lance Lynn, he throws his fastball in the sinker at the, his four-seamer in the sinker at the same velocity and then has like an inch or two of different vertical difference, of vertical separation at the end, which sounds very little, but that's very hard for a batter to kind of get the barrel on the ball. Sure. Because the pitches are going to look identical and they're going to have subtle movement differences. Okay. So even a subtle movement difference late in the game can make a big difference as far as the the strength of contact because you're you're at least you may not be getting a whiff on it but you could be getting some uh, decreased barrel contact Correct. by by, right. by playing with a launch angle. So it's not none of these things are hard and fast rules. There's no one recipe for success as a pitcher as we know. Yeah. But when you take that pitcher's pitches, it's very easy to see what they would need to tweak in order to have a fastball slider pair that pops or a curveball that might actually not the curveballs, but the cutters maybe change ups too, if they can get their arm speed. And it's really easy from a player development or just a communication standpoint. Whereas if you'd show them a 3d tunnel and you try to, you know, communicate how they can impact that extremely difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Um, you know, with the, with the tunneling, I think a lot was made of release point and, and like you said, the pitch pairs, like one pitch to another back and forth, seeing those from, from literally one pitch to the next and seeing the separation between the two and really focusing on, are they coming from the same release point? And then do they have different movements? So this kind of takes a slightly different approach while that could still be valuable it's more about just the general way that all of a pitcher's offerings tend to work together. Exactly. And another thing I was noticing when I added in arm angles into the research is you can vary your arm angles and what really matters is the movement synergy. Right. So the release point isn't that important. Batters are used to seeing a lot of different release points. The way they're going to guess what pitch it is, is by knowing who the pitcher is and looking at how that pitch moves, which which segues into the arm angle gives them some information. And actually a big part of deception is arm angle adjusted induced vertical break. So because they're going to, based on the arm angle, they're going to guess how much horizontal and vertical movement it is. And depending on how much you deviate from that will actually be a lot of what the the stuff models are picking up on. That's fascinating. So one of your recent posts, I'm going to, I'm going to try to angle this a little bit back towards the minor league side of things, because a lot of the research that you've done is taken this great data about major league pitchers. I want to kind of tilt a little bit towards this article that you um, sent out on your Substack about AAA relief pitchers to watch. 
And I just like that as an example for how you can use this to look at AAA pitchers as well. And, and, you know, as we go down the levels as much as we have data for. So would you mind talking to me a little bit about what you found when you were trying to examine these relief pitchers? It, it seemed to be more on kind of the, the fantasy baseball bent, like, you know, who are some guys that might be able to pop up soon? But tell me a little bit about what that process was like looking at some players that may have had smaller samples or the data may not be as um, you know clear as you get with when you're looking at the um, the MLB pitchers. Yeah, so for me, I was more looking at pitchers that have a chance to impact a bullpen. Yeah. For that, there's a few criteria. Number one is fastball velocity. So I was just looking at pitchers with great fastball velocity that had good underlying metrics on their their fastball and and, and their slider like swing and miss. So if you look at the first guy I picked out with is George Soriano, mm-hmm. so he'd be a great example of what we're talking about pitch development. As you can see, his his fastball and his slider. Slider has too much initial, doesn't sorry, does not have enough initial downward velocity on the vertical plane. And if he would figure out how to fix that, immediately he's got a 97 fastball and a slider, which if you and your brain take it and kind of just tilt it down a little bit, yep. you can see it will have pretty good separation, not the Grom level separation. We're talking about a pitcher that I've never heard of before I did this research. Yeah. <laughs> and you just communicate him that slight little tweak. I still he's he could be a dynamite pitcher. That's fascinating. Theoretically. So I'm I, I again I, I I don't know how it'll work in practice. So I'm hoping George George Soriano comes up, he's listening to this podcast, makes those little tweaks between his fastball and slider, and boom, he's a he's a top level closer. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously simplifying by saying a little tweak. I mean, this is obviously the stuff that, you know, pitchers work on their whole lives. But when there's a goal and a target and something that you can use the data and say, okay, let's try some different things to get a little bit more of that break um, in one or more directions. And you can adjust your arm angle and you can adjust your release and you can work with somebody to, to adjust your mechanics to get that. That's where we get into the pitch design thing. And I think it's a different way to look at a starting point for player development when they're trying to make these these different tweaks to their offerings. So yeah, this is fascinating because again, you covered five different relief pitchers in this, George Soriano, Angel Felipe, Ronald Blanco, Chris Muller, and Hogan Harrison. Uh, Harris is especially interesting to me because I did some research on him this past um, winter for the, um, the Oakland Athletics chapter in the Baseball Prospectus Annual. And so he's a starting pitcher right now and, and got kind of blown up in AAA last year, but he was, he was really solid at the lower levels and he still was getting whiffs at, at all levels. But he's one that you thought that there was a lot of options for him if he were to move into the bullpen. He could maybe take up his velocity and then and then really optimize. Yeah, and he could just pick a couple of his pitches that work well together. I mean, usually the fastball slider is, but it doesn't need to be the, that pair. And just, just pound those. He doesn't, I, I mean, I don't know if he's going to be a starter or not. He was only throwing, I think, four innings per start or something. Yeah, he was definitely very limited in terms of his his workload like a lot of the uh, Oakland starting pitchers were last year. And his triple A, like his numbers through a single A, double A, and triple A, like the underlying metrics were really, really good. So maybe he ends up as a starter. What do I know? I've never, I've never seen a pitch. But if he ends up in the bullpen, he could be he could be a really, really good reliever. Interestingly, I don't think a five-picks pitch mix is beneficial for a reliever. Mm-hmm. I think one, two, max three is clearly more than enough but he's got enough there that he can pick any two and be and be quite dominant i think that's fascinating that's really cool to jump out i know harris was kind of overlooked in a lot of the uh athletics uh prospect diving uh over the last year because uh 
well, there's so much turnover and there's always somebody new that the athletics are bringing in to uh, examine from a pitching standpoint, especially. So they'll, they'll have a whole lot of young arms in their starting mix, both at AAA and in the majors this year. So he'll be an interesting one to watch. I would, I would hope that he'll end up in AAA to start the season. Uh, and we'll get to see a little bit more about how he works as a uh, as a starter and if he cuts down that pitch mix a little bit because you're right he you know when you're trying to develop five pitches at once it, it can be a lot harder than just trying to focus in on three or four yep. and he was he was 93 as a starter roughly yeah if he's in the bullpen throwing one inning sometimes that becomes 96 and if that's 96 with two elite pitches and starter command which he clearly has because he can throw five pitches could be could be something there yeah sure so what's the next steps for this research? I know you're continuing to explore a lot of the different teams and a lot of the different pitchers on a lot of the different MLB franchises right now. Where do you want to continue to take this as you you know continue to dig into the data? Or is there a refinement to the model or how you want to kind of proceed with this going forward over the next uh, you know, several months as you, as you continue on with this research? I'm hoping somebody that's better at math than me, which is a lot of people, is able to quantify it properly. Mm-hmm. More, I'm just exploring it and seeing as I go through it, sometimes ideas pop up to me or I get a better sense for the data. So I don't know if I really have any plan for the research. I'm really hoping someone else will formalize it and either prove it wrong or prove it right for certain, certain subset of pitch bears. Sure. No, that's a great, um, you know, having, being clear about the level of uncertainty that we have in all of our data is uh, very, very wise thing to uh, to share with everyone. So I appreciate that. And hopefully, you know, we will continue to see more folks uh, joining your uh, Substack newsletter, reading all about this, seeing this information get out a little bit more. Um, that's one of the reasons why we want to have you on is because this is such useful, interesting way of looking at at how pitchers can synergize their pitches and, and what that really looks like, both at the major and minor league level. So hopefully this causes uh, some more folks to check this out and review and provide some comments and, and see what, what folks are thinking about this. That would be fantastic. I'm very flattered from, from the inaugural guest for, for this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was really interesting. We have, like I said, um, you know, uh, David and Josh, the other the other guys who are contributors to the newsletter, you know, we all called out that this was something that was really interesting and a great thing for us to kind of explore more. And we'd love to continue to see more development in this area because it does tie so closely to having a more data-based approach to player development. And that's something that I feel very strongly about. It's something that a lot of people feel very strongly about is that we've done so much in the sabermetric sphere over the last 20 years about having a data-based approach to process, to outcomes at the major league level. But how can we take this into player development and really allow people to be the best versions of themselves as pitchers, hitters, people? all that. So this is, this is a fantastic start and it gives another way that we can look at this. So I, I found it particularly fascinating. Thank you. It's, you know, my, my biggest fear is when, when I write something is that nobody will read it. So it's very nice to hear that there are actually people in the world that are reading my work. Yeah. <laughs> We're all in that position. Everybody who puts something out there into the world is like, ah, oh, man, nobody's going to look at this. So I, I totally get that. I spent years doing that and feeling the exact same way. So I totally get that. Well, I think that'll wrap up this discussion. I, I want to thank you again, Ellie, for joining us here today to talk about your work. Um, why don't you just take a moment and plug your Substack or shout out anything that you'd like to give you the opportunity to put it out there for us uh, before I let you go. All right. Well, my Substack is turned into research notes. Uh, I used to spend 
days and weeks preparing research for Heart of All Times, but that, when that went defunct, I didn't really have a place to publish my research. So now it's more, less research papers, more research notes. So I'm hoping the quality is still good enough, but it's more, I guess, interactive, more work in progress stuff, because I like to get it out there and get some feedback rather than me spending three weeks checking things. <laughs> sure. Which is an interesting process, but it's also very liberating. So more I want to say to everybody, if you have research and you want to do research and you want your work, make your own publication. It's really easy. Don't worry about whether people are going to read it or not and just get it out there. And sometimes good things happen. Absolutely. So, um, and that Substack newsletter is at elliebenporat.substack.com. Ellie, you've got, uh, do you have a Twitter account that you want to share as well? Yeah, it'd be the same as as just my name, you know, at Ellie Benporat. You should find me on pretty much everything. It's just my name. I don't do uh, aliases for some reason. I guess I'm just uh, too old. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely feel that um, it, it's also nice to to be able to just have one kind of uh, brand out there for you that everybody can just look and find and, and makes things very simple. So that's great. Um, and again, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you so much for having me. Again, I'm Brian Grosnick. I'm the host of this podcast. This has been the Down on the Farm podcast. For more great minor league baseball content, we've got scores, prospect profiles, new data, new metrics, uh, and daily updates once the minor league season gets going. Um, you can visit us at downonthefarm.substack.com, on Twitter at, at downonthefarm12. Subscriptions are available to the newsletter at a monthly and an annual rate. We have free subscriptions, but our bread and butter are paid subscriptions. I think you'll find they're very affordable. They're a great way to keep on the cutting edge of minor league baseball research. We have over 1,500 subscribers right now, including plenty of MLBM insiders at the time of this recording. So stop by your podcast provider. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to the podcast. Please don't forget to rate and review us with a five-star rating. And we'll see you next time on the Down on the Farm podcast. Bye.